You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 130. This episode is entitled 10 Alleged Discoveries That Suggest That Giants Existed. away in the quiet village of Odius is an enchanted forest, at least according to local legend. From the atlasobscura.com, the enchanted forest of Odius. Odius is the autonomous community of Catalonia and is located in Spain's northeast, near Barcelona and along the Mediterranean coast. Its mysterious forest may be one of the region's most magical or at least mystifying places. Many say that the forest is haunted. Entering the forest of Aureus is like stepping into a world of goblins, monsters and covens. As you follow the forest trail, you'll come upon figures carved in rock. Many resemble the famous heads of Easter Island, though there are also other shapes, such as a giant elephant. Local artists are said to have created the sculptures, and indeed you can see signatures on a stone near the elephant. The carvings and arrangement of figures implies some mystical or mythological factors at play, elements of space and boundary, earth and deity. Perhaps the figures are the entrance to another realm. Some certainly seem to think so. The remains of animals have been found in the forest, suggesting possible sacrificial rituals. Some people believe the forest is home to gnomes or dwarves who live in or below the stone structures. There's even a strange rock with a small door where a few people can squeeze inside. If you're in Barcelona and want to make a short escape from the city to search for an alternate realm, the enchanted forest of Aureus awaits. Aureus is a 50-minute drive from Barcelona, though there are also longer public bus options. Once you're best there, your best bet is to ask a local to point you in the right direction. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 130 of the Mysteries Abound show notes, 
there are some slideshows showing you parts of the forest. And from the mysteriousearth.net website. Antarctica. NASA images reveal traces of ancient human settlement under 2.3 kilometres of ice. The intriguing discovery was made during aircraft test trials of NASA's Advanced Topographic Laser Altimeter System, LIDAR technology, or ATLAS for short, set to be launched on the Ice, Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite 2, or ICESAT-2, in 2017, that aims to monitor changes in polar ice. There's very little margin for error when it comes to individual photons sitting on individual fibre optics. That is why we were so surprised when we noticed these abnormal features on the LiDAR imagery, explains Nathan Borowitz, IceBridge's project science and sea ice researcher with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre in Greenbelt, Maryland. As of now, we can only speculate as to what these features are, but the launching of ICESat-2 in 2017 could lead to other major discoveries and a better understanding of Antarctica's geomorphological features, he adds. Leading archaeologist Ashoka Tripathi of the Department of Archaeology at the University of Calcutta believes the images show clear evidence of an ancient human settlement beneath the ice sheet. These are clearly features of some sort of human-made structure, resembling some sort of pyramidal structure. The patterns clearly show nothing we should expect from natural geomorphological formations found in nature. We clearly have here evidence of human engineering. The only problem is that these photographs were taken in Antarctica, under two kilometres of ice. That is clearly the puzzling part. We do not have any explanation for this at the moment, he admits. These pictures just reflect a small portion of Antarctica's total landmass. There are possibly many other additional sites that are covered over with ice. It just shows us how easy it is to underestimate both the size and scale of past human settlements, he says. Historian and cartographer at the University of Cambridge, Christopher Adam, believes there might be a rational explanation. One of history's most puzzling maps is that of the Turkish admiral Piraeus in 1513 AD, which successfully mapped the coastline of Antarctica over 500 years ago. What is most fascinating about this map is that it shows the coastline of Antarctica without any ice. How is it possible when images of the subglacial coastline of Antarctica were only seen for the first time after the development of ground-penetrating radar in 1958. Is it possible Antarctica has not always been covered under such an ice sheet? This could be evidence that it is a possibility, he acknowledges. A slight pole shift or displacement of the axis of rotation of the Earth in historical times is possibly the only rational explanation that comes to mind, but we definitely need more research done before we jump to any conclusion. ICESat-2, part of NASA's Earth orbiting system, is a planned satellite mission for measuring ice sheet mass elevation, sea ice freeboard, as well as land topography and vegetation characteristics, and is set to launch in May 2017.
Imagine a world in which the font you choose is chosen for you, based entirely on your demographic affiliations. All doctors write in Garamond, while designers are mandated Futura Bold. Middle-aged men get Ariel, women Helvetica, goofy aunts must use Comic Sans. Seems strange? A few centuries ago, that was just how things worked. In colonial America, the very style in which one formed letters was determined by one's place in society, writes historian Tamara Thornton in Handwriting in America, A Cultural History. Thanks to the rigorous teachings of professionals called penmen, merchants wrote strong, loopy logbooks. Women's words were intricate and shaded, and upper-class men did whatever they felt like. So different were the results, says Thornton, that a fully literate stranger could evaluate the social significance of a letter simply by noting what hand it had been written in. From the atlasobscura.com, a story by Cara Giamo, The Hidden Messages of Colonial Handwriting. In colonial times, penmanship was basically secret code. Understanding how colonists put pen to paper means understanding why they wanted to write in the first place. As E. Jennifer Monaghan explains in Literacy, Instruction and Gender in Colonial New England, Puritans and other early colonists considered reading and writing to be largely separate endeavours. For your average Thaddeus, Miles or Hiram, reading was generally valued not as a skill in itself, but as a direct route to the era's most popular book, the Bible. Starting around age six, children were taught reading by their mothers, aunts or grandmothers with the aid of what John Locke called the ordinary road of educational materials. Religious texts of varying difficulty, starting with a one-page hornbook, ending with a complete Bible. Even if you could motor through the whole Bible, though, there was no guarantee you could copy any of it. If reading was taught first, as a universal spiritual need, Thornton writes, writing was taught second, and then only to some. The practice of writing in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries was considered less of a creative or analytical endeavour than a kind of rote physical one. Just as good reading was considered to be accurate oral reading, so good writing seemed to be only viewed entirely in terms of fine letter formation, writes Monaghan. Any art involved was concentrated not in what the words said, but in what they looked like. Because of this, writing was considered a kind of craft, a skill one needed in order to properly carry out his or her other professional and social duties. As these duties differed, so did the type of writing required. Loopy or straight, thin or bold, embellished or simple, these different styles were called hands. As with reading's trajectory, the existence of different hands can be traced back to the relationship between words and religion. In the Middle Ages, church authorities mandated a particular type of dense, blocky script, now known as Gothic script, for religious documents. To differentiate themselves, legal and court scribes developed their own, slightly different hands, 
and readers became accustomed to the symbolic coexistence of different styles. As literacy increased and more people began writing, a new thin flowing style called the Italian or Italic Hand came into vogue, imported from Florence. This new style was meant to be both pleasing to the eye and easy to read, writes Letitia Yandel in The Evolution of Handwriting in English-Speaking Colonies in America. For a brief period in the 17th century, the two hands flourished in America. People sometimes switched between both in a single sentence. But soon the hierarchy shook out. By the end of the 1600s, the Gothic hand was old-fashioned, the newer Italian hand trendy and on the rise. Though Gothic script was still required for legal documents, everyone else kept away from it. Indeed, Thornton writes, its increasing impenetrability may have added to the people's distrust of lawyers. Those who did want to be trusted made sure to learn the hand that was right for them. To do so, they often employed a penman, an expert quill wielder who had mastered what was then, as Monaghan puts it, a fairly arcane skill. Many penmen were former scribes or secretaries who had been rooted from their old jobs by the development and proliferation of the printing press. All were trained in multiple scripts, all the most modish as well as necessary hands, as one advertisement dug up by Thornton read. A client could hire a penman to teach him whatever script he needed. A merchant, banker or tradesman might learn round text, a skinny hand with a slight lean, or round hand, a loopier variant. Both forms of stripped-down Italian script, good for people who needed to be both quick and legible. Some who wished to differentiate themselves from more prosaic farmers or artisans might learn to add slight embellishments, or ornate capital letters, though penmen cautioned them against compromising their speed or assuredness. Among men of business, wrote one expert, all affected flourishes and quant devices are as much avoided as capering and cutting in ordinary walking. While merchants and businessmen worked hard to perfect their round hand, those who leaned on their titles rather than their occupations took the opposite tack. The best way for upper-class colonial men to prove their aristocratic status was to make their work appear effortless. Such people often refused to hire penmen on principle in order to prove they didn't need to learn a trade. The on-paper equivalent of growing your nails long or wearing fancy clothes. It is much to be regretted that it has become of late years in a degree fashionable to write a scrawling, almost unintelligible way, fumed penman John Jenkins in 1813. Indeed, sometimes it seemed like the only ones who cared for what one penman calls owls, apes, monsters and springed letters were the penmen themselves. Constantly striving to be considered artists rather than mere craftsmen, they used what platforms they had to emphasise handwriting's beauty and importance. Though their advertisements used practical promises to draw in specific audiences, the copybooks they used to teach their lessons often betrayed their inner romanticism. A seaside penman, fishing for customers in Boston, offered to teach 
gauging, navigation and astronomy, alongside writing, while a southern one promised two-in-one writing and dance lessons. Handwriting was not only useful in business, wrote George Bickham in his 1740 work The Universal Penman, done well, it could be imbued with masterly beauty. Clients, though, preferred to focus on the useful aspects, as Thomas Tompkins, a penman who spent his whole life angling for an invitation to a particular artist's academy, found out the hard way. After years of talking up his medium, a friend later related, the luckless calligrapher went down to his grave without dining at the academy. Penman got to cut a little looser while teaching ladies. While working women also learned the round hand, aristocratic women, who, as Penman John Davies once wrote, could never bruise a letter as men could do, were privy to a whole different set of scripts. One favourite was the Roman, a flowing hand which, with its light touch and varying thicknesses, was easy on the eyes and the wrist. As a bonus, it supposedly could not be managed well by men's fingers, which were hardened by the sword hilt. Certain forms of it even required decorative shading, indicating that the writer had time enough to go back over all her letters, an unmistakable sign of a leisurely lifestyle. As Thornton points out, the fact that these hands revealed what their writers did as a profession, or lack of one, kept people in their place. The same thing that enabled people to play letter detective doubled as a subtle form of social control, guaranteeing that the writing produced by different categories of writers would be accorded culturally appropriate, socially innocuous degrees of authority, she writes, ensuring that just because literacy was spreading didn't mean everyone was on an equal footing. Over the centuries, as notions of identity shifted, Handwriting became less a measure of your various statuses than of your individual personality. These days, with the anonymizing veneers of computer fonts, 21st century humans count on other aspects of self-presentation to give them away. Aspects contained in the words themselves, and not their forms. Unless, that is, you send emails in Comic Sans. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there are some really nice examples of the different types of handwriting and other parts of books and things teaching you how to handwrite from the colonial period. If you're interested, worth a look. Stories of giants are littered throughout mythology and folklore. Almost every culture and society has tales of gigantic people who once roamed the earth. However, over the last 200 years or so, and particularly since the early 20th century, there have been many alleged finds of giant skeletal remains or fossilised footprints. 
possibly suggesting that the tales of giants are more than pure legend. All of these accounts also carry an air of conspiracy about them, with insinuations of the discoveries being covered up and dismissed thereafter. Are they all hoaxes, or are there more to these stories than we might think? Here are ten alleged giant discoveries. From the listverse.com, an article by Marcus Loth. Ten alleged discoveries that suggest giants existed. Number 10. Giant bones found at Lake Delavan, Wisconsin in 1912. According to a report that ran in the New York Times on May 4, 1912, 18 gigantic skeletons buried in charcoal and baked clay were found at Lake Delavan in Wisconsin. The discovery was made by the Phillips brothers while excavating a burial mound. They were presumed to be the remains of an unknown race of people who once called the area home. Although they appear to be very much human, there were some noticeable differences aside from their much larger size. The bone above the eye socket sloped straight back, and the nose appeared to be much higher than the cheekbones, as opposed to being more or less in line with them. The jawbones themselves were described as bearing a minute resemblance to the head of a monkey. These giants apparently weren't the only ones found in Wisconsin, In 1891, the New York Times also reported that scientists from the Smithsonian Institute had discovered giant remains while investigating burial mounds in the ancient city of Zatalan near Madison, Wisconsin. Six years later, in 1897, the Times published another report about the discovery of a nine-foot skeleton in nearby Maple Creek. While all of the reports stated that the findings would be further studied and investigated, there appear to be no published reports or conclusions about them. Number 9. The Giants of Death Valley, 1947 In 1931, F. Bruce Russell, a former physician from Cincinnati, announced that he had discovered a series of tunnels and caves under California's Death Valley in the Mojave Desert. With his colleague Daniel Espovee, the two men explored the caves extensively. According to the story that Russell told to Howard E. Hill, they found several human skeletons, each around nine feet tall. Hill told a story at a meeting of the Los Angeles Transportation Club and the apparent find was reported in the San Diego Union on August 4, 1947. The skeletal remains were apparently mummified and Bovee stated that he felt their age to be around 80,000 years old. Within the network of tunnels and caverns, the pair also found what they proposed was the ancient people's ritual hall where they found markings that appeared to be very similar to those used in Masonic societies. Hieroglyphics were also said to be found that closely resembled those that have been linked with the lost civilization of Atlantis. Number 8. Giant Remains Found at Varna, Bulgaria, 2015 Varna in modern-day Bulgaria was once the ancient Greek city of Odessus, 
an important trading post that dates back 7,000 years. Odysseus's mythology was particularly rife with giants. So when what appeared to be a giant human skeleton was discovered there in January 2015, it raised quite a few eyebrows for those who have an interest in such things. The discovery was made by accident. Excavators were digging in the area after they found a jar that appeared to date back to the 5th century. They discovered an unknown fortress wall, and as they continued to dig in order to get to the foundations of the wall, they stumbled upon the amazing find. The skeleton was found with his hands placed on his waist and his head facing to the east. Excavators and investigators believe that he was placed in that position on purpose, indicating that he was most likely of some importance at the time of his death and burial. Although no actual height was released to the media at the time of the find, one of the excavators referred to the skeleton as very tall and impressive. Number 7. Enormous Remains Found in Ecuador, 1964 In 1964 in Ecuador, Father Carlos Vasa, a priest who also worked in hospitals, was called upon by the locals to look at some strange bones that had been discovered. What was particularly strange about the bones was their amazing size. Father Vasa took some of the bones from the mountain where they had been found and they remained in his home until his death. Austrian artefact researcher Klaus Donner was given permission to take the bones back with him to Austria to be examined and to feature in an exhibition called Unsolved Mysteries. Klaus claimed that several experts have examined the bones and that they do appear to be human. From the size of the bones they have, including a complete shin bone, Klaus estimates that the person who they belong to would have stood 25 feet tall. In an interview with Project Camelot, Donna claims that he subjected the bones to DNA tests, courtesy of an Austrian archaeological DNA specialist, and that no strands of DNA could be obtained. This led Donna to conclude that the bones had to be over 10,000 years old at the very least. He also claimed in the same interview that the area where they first discovered translated as Cemetery of the Giants from the local Ayamara language. 6. Giant mummies found in tunnels near the Colorado River in 1909. According to a report in the Arizona Gazette in April 1909, while rafting on the Colorado River, explorer G.E. Kincaid made several remarkable discoveries. He claimed to have noticed a tunnel that took him almost one mile under the ground. He encountered a fortified, secured area at the end of the tunnel in which he found copper weapons and tools, a large statue, which Kincaid claimed looked similar to Buddha, ancient tablets that were carved with strange hieroglyphics, and perhaps most fascinatingly, several nine-foot-tall mummies, all wrapped in dark shrouds. If his claims weren't controversial enough, Kincaid added a little conspiracy fuel to the fire when he stated that the government had purposely sealed and closed off the area so that the public would not be aware of its existence. The Arizona Gazette headline also stated that the finds were an indication that ancient tall people 
had migrated to the United States thousands of years ago from Asia. Number 5. The Mystery of Lovelock Cave, 1911-1929 About 20 miles south of Lovelock, Nevada, you will find Lovelock Cave, sometimes referred to as Sunset Guano Cave, Horseshoe Cave or Indian Cave. The cave is said to be older than known human settlements on the continent, stretching right back to antiquity. In 1911, two miners, David Hart and James Pugh, who knew about the cave, took an interest in the guano that was present there. They were looking to extract it due to its value at the time as a key ingredient for gunpowder. They quickly set up a company and received permission to begin digging it out, which they immediately began to do, although they had no intention of searching for anything from ancient times. They soon believed that they'd found exactly that, and they contacted Alfred Klober, founder of the University of California's Anthropology Department. The first archaeological project in the cave began the following year and was followed by two further digs in 1924 and 1929. Over the course of the excavations, thousands of artefacts were discovered, including around 60 human mummies of average height, as well as numerous bones and weapons. They also are said to have found what looked to be sandals that were around 15 inches long, a giant-sized handprint that appeared to have been embedded in the cave wall, and more mummies, only this time they appeared to be 8 to 10 feet tall. What is interesting, if these finds were indeed true, is that the Paiutes, a Native American tribe that inhabited the area for thousands of years, spoke of a race of red-haired, white-skinned giants whom they referred to as Si-Ti-Cha. Their home was the recently excavated cave. Number 4. Giant Human Finger Found in Egypt, 2012 In March 2012, photographs of what appeared to be the mummified remains of a giant finger claimed to have been discovered in Egypt appeared on various websites and online media outlets. The digit clocked in at 15 inches long, meaning that if it was proven to be authentic, the individual it belonged to would have been gigantic. However, despite the alleged photographic evidence, the finger's authenticity has yet to be verified, as the person who took the photograph doesn't have the finger. According to the original story, which appeared on the website Bild, a German tabloid, the photographs were taken in 1988 by Gregor Sbori. He had paid $300 to an unknown man who claimed to belong to a grave robber dynasty for the privilege of taking the pictures. The unknown man also presented Sbori with an X-ray and a certificate to prove that it was a human finger something he had obtained in the 1960s. Spotty returned to Egypt in 2009, hoping to track down the man he had spoken with, but he was unsuccessful in doing so. At least for now, the huge finger's whereabouts are unknown. Interestingly, regarding the existence of giants in ancient Egypt, the Roman scholar Flavius Josephus seemed to believe that they very much existed. In AD 79, he wrote in the history of the Jewish war that there were giants, much larger and shaped differently than normal people, terrible to behold. 
Number 3. Aleutian Island Discovery, 1940. Ivan T. Sanderson was a popular and respected zoologist who regularly appeared on television to disperse his wisdom. One of his strangest tales, however, concerned a letter he'd received from an engineer working on Shemya in the Aleutian Islands in 1940 during World War II. The Aleutians sit between Alaska and the easternmost part of Russia and divide the North Pacific and the Bering Sea. The US was using the islands as a base of sorts for the potential and eventual conflict with Japan and was in the process of building airstrips when they made a bizarre discovery. As they bulldozed hills to flatten the ground, they came across a graveyard of human skulls and leg bones. They were, however, almost three times as large as a standard adult. The skulls measured between 22 to 24 inches from top to bottom, as opposed to an average of 8 inches. Sanderson stated that he received a second letter from another member of the unit that confirmed the find and corroborated the first letter. Interestingly, both men stated in their notes that the Smithsonian Institution had collected the remains. Sanderson said that not only had the Smithsonian released no data on the find, but they denied that any such relics had ever been in their possession. Sanderson asserted that he believed each of the engineers' claims to be true. He speculated that they couldn't face rewriting all the textbooks, given their decision to lock away the discovery. Number 2. The Giants of the Caucasus Mountains, Georgia. 2014. In 2014, the TV show The Unexplained Files aired an episode about possible ancient giant civilizations. As part of the episode, they concentrated on the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia. In 2008, local herdsmen had stumbled upon a supposed grave of giants. A group of Georgian researchers soon followed up on the account speaking to the man who made the discovery as part of their investigation. He informed them that he had come across a stone-built crypt, and after gaining entrance to it, he discovered two huge skeletons sitting at a large table. The researchers ventured into the isolated mountains and densely forested location to see for themselves. They reached the crypt that the man had spoken of, but it had since collapsed. However, under the dirt and rubble, a pile of bones was found. They did indeed appear to be human, aside from the fact that they were much larger. Samples of the find were investigated by Professor Fikua, a very respected scientist. He declared that if they were indeed proved to be human bones, then the person they belonged to would have been between 8 to 10 feet tall. Before any final conclusion could be reached, however, Fikua passed away and the bones have since been lost in the museum they were being held at. The unexplained files crew didn't recover any further bones since the crypt appeared to have since completely fallen in. However, they declared that a full excavation of the site should be carried out, which could indeed turn up more of the skeletal remains that the original Georgian researchers found. And number one. Giant Footprints Found Worldwide There have been several alleged fossilised giant footprints found throughout the world. 
Perhaps the most well-known of these is Goliath's footprint in South Africa near the Swaziland border. The impression is four foot long and appears to be perfectly matched to a human foot. Although there is debate on exactly how old Goliath's footprint is, estimates may have ranged anywhere from 200 million to 3 billion years old. Other fossilised prints of similar size have also been reported. In 1926, the Oakland Tribune ran a story concerning five-foot footprints on top of a cliff in San Jose, California. The year before, in 1925, an alleged eight-foot footprint was discovered near San Jose at the John Bunting Ranch. However, a set of standard-sized footprints are perhaps more fascinating in relation to the other much larger ones. In 1976, anthropologist Mary Leakey reported the discovery of normal-sized fossilised footprints in Tanzania. They looked perfectly human, but their age was estimated to be around 3.6 million years old. This predates, by millions of years, the time frame that mainstream science states that modern humans were present on Earth. If these footprints are genuine, they'd force what we know about the history of humanity on Earth to be re-evaluated and rewritten, and they'd also beg the question of whether the alleged giant footprints are also genuine. If they were, it would suggest that human beings at some point in their history coexisted with so-called giants, just as mythology and legend state they did. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there is a photograph or a YouTube video to go with each number. So if you really want to find out more, take a look. Quite interesting. As far as astronomers knew, the first evidence for the existence of exoplanets, or planets outside of our solar system, was recorded in the late 1980s and early 1990s. However, a glass plate recently discovered in the archives of the Carnegie Observatories in California shows that, unbeknownst to them, astronomers had been sitting on evidence of exoplanets since as far back as 1917. From the smithsonianmag.com website. A story by Danny Lewis. Scientists discovered exoplanets more than 70 years earlier than thought. It might seem like modern astronomers regularly announce the discovery of new planets outside of our solar system. But this wasn't the case until recently. These days, astronomers rely on sophisticated instruments like the Kepler Space Telescope to detect exoplanets by searching for certain clues. But during the early 20th century, the only method astronomers had for studying the makeup of faraway stars was to photograph them on glass plates, like the one recently discovered by astronomer Jay Farihi, Maddie Stone reports for Gizmodo. Farihi never intended to look for planets. He actually tried to dig up old information about a particular white dwarf star known as Van Manen's star, first discovered by famed astronomer Walter Adams in 1917 
The star was recorded on a glass plate, along with an image of its light spectrum. Farihi was studying white dwarfs when he requested to see Adams's plate. He examined the star spectrum to see what it was made of and realised that it contained heavy elements that shouldn't have been there, like magnesium and iron. Upon closer inspection, he realised that they must have come from the shattered remains of a planet. The mechanism that creates the rings of planetary debris and the deposition into the stellar atmosphere requires the gravitational influence of full-fledged planet, Fahihi says. The process couldn't occur unless there were planets there. The presence of these elements suggests that the white dwarf is surrounded by rocky debris left over from a planet that once orbited the star. While astronomers have yet to directly observe an exoplanet in orbit around a white dwarf, in recent years they have found evidence of rocky debris around similar stars. These polluted white dwarfs were at first a surprise, as scientists at first believed that white dwarfs were so old that any evidence of planets orbiting them would have been long gone. The unexpected realisation that this 1917 plate from our archive contains the earliest recorded evidence of a polluted white dwarf star system is just incredible, Carnegie Observatory's director John Mulcahy says in a statement. And the fact that it was made by such a prominent astronomer in our history as Walter Adams enhances the excitement. In recent years, observatory archives have been a treasure trove for scientists and historians alike. Just a few months ago, Danish astronomers dug up glass plates dating back to the 19th and early 20th century that documented solar eclipses and helped confirm Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. With hundreds of thousands of glass plates in the Carnegie Observatory's archives, Mulcahy hopes they might hold more discoveries just waiting to be found. We have a ton of history sitting in our basement, and who knows what other finds we might unearth in the future, he says. And from the foxnews.com, a story by Charles Q. Choi. Strangely in sync, scientists solve a 350-year-old pendulum clock mystery. The 350-year-old mystery of why pendulum clocks hanging from the same wall can influence each other and synchronise over time may hold even more secrets than previously thought, researchers say. Solving this mystery could shed light on puzzling aspects of a variety of synchronised behaviours, such as how brain cells work together, the scientists added. In 1665, the inventor of the pendulum clock Dutch physicist Christian Huygens was lying in bed sick, watching two of his clocks when he noticed something odd. No matter how the pendulums on these clocks started, they ended up swinging in the exact opposite direction from each other within about half an hour. For centuries the cause of this effect was unknown. Solving the puzzle could help shed light on the mysterious phenomenon of synchronisation, scientists say. The synchronisation phenomenon is one of the most pervasive drives in nature, said study lead author Jonathan Pena Ramirez, a dynamicist at the Centre for Scientific Research and Higher Education in Ensenada, Mexico. For example, consider a couple dancing to the rhythm of music, 
or violinists in an orchestra playing in unison, or a school of fish gracefully swimming. In a separate study published last year in the journal Scientific Reports, scientists suggested that the explanation for this phenomenon involved sound pulses travelling from clock to clock, for instance through the wall on which the machines hang. However, Penner and his colleagues now suggest that Huygens' original explanation for this mystery could be the correct one. The researchers experimented with two complex pendulum clocks known as monumental clocks. To the best of our knowledge, this is the first time that Huygens' experiment is reproduced using real monumental pendulum clocks, Penner told Alive Science. Previous studies have used scaled-down versions of pendulum clocks or commercial and generic clocks. The scientists placed both clocks on the same wooden table. As they expected, the motion of the clock pendulums synchronised over time. However, unlike the clocks in Huygens' experiment, the clocks did not swing in opposite directions. Rather, they unexpectedly moved in exactly the same direction. Moreover, while the clocks stayed in sync, they became slower and more inaccurate over time, the scientists said. To explain these findings, the researchers developed a mathematical model of the clocks, taking into account the flexible nature of the wooden support that both machines rested on. The model suggested that the clocks could make the wooden board vibrate. The researchers found that the support connecting the clocks, in this case the wooden table, could serve as a kind of communication channel between the clocks, which they could use to exchange energy. The rigidity, thickness and mass of this support can influence the way in which the clocks synchronise and how inaccurate they become, the researchers said. Long ago, Huygens suggested that the synchronous behaviour of the clocks he observed might be caused by the imperceptible vibrations of the beam on which they are hanging, Penner said. Huygens was so brilliant that he gave the correct explanation for his discovery without using a single equation. These findings suggest that much remains unknown about how coupled pendulum clocks behave, Penner said. There are still hidden secrets to be revealed and consequently further studies of this system are necessary in order to unveil more details about the complex yet intriguing synchronisation phenomenon, Penner said. A better understanding of synchronisation could have technological and biological implications. For instance, consider two rotors mount on an elastic support. A familiar example of this kind of device is a washing machine, Penner said. Under certain conditions, the rotors may synchronise to rotate in the same direction or in opposite directions, he said. The synchronisation of these rotors in opposite directions is highly desirable because this will reduce or even eliminate the vibrations of the washing machine while its rotors are operating. However, synchronisation of these rotors in the same direction is not desired at all because strong vibrations can result with harmful and undesirable effects, he explained. Something similar happens in living organisms, Penner said. For instance, inside the human body there are several biological rhythms – respiration, heartbeat and blood perfusion, just to mention a few of them. It has been found that when some of these rhythms synchronise with each other, the energy consumption is minimal. Hence, in this case, the onset of synchronisation is beneficial. On the other hand, synchronisation can also be dangerous or detrimental.
It is widely accepted that the process of seizure generation is closely associated with abnormal synchronisation of neurons. The scientists detail their findings online in the journal Scientific Reports. In the early 1870s, a Georgia family was at the centre of a whirlwind of bizarre and sometimes violent poltergeist activity. From the paranormal.about.com website, a story by Stephen Wagner, The Surrency Haunting. That place was possessed by something evil. That was the opinion of Herschel Tillman when he recalled his many visits to the home of Alan Powell Surrency when he was a boy in the early 1870s. He was just one of the thousands of witnesses to the strange and sometimes violent paranormal activity that plagued the Surrency home, making it one of the most well-known and witnessed cases of this kind in American history. Alan Powell Surrency, a sawmill operator, was the founder of the small town of Surrency in southeastern Georgia. When returning home from a trip to Hazelhurst in October 1872, he found his house beset with the haunting. In a letter he wrote to the Savannah Morning News, he said, A few minutes after my arrival, I saw the glass tumblers begin to slide off the slab and the crockery to fall upon the floor and break. The books began to tumble from their shelves to the floor, while brickbats, billets of wood, smoothing irons, biscuits, potatoes, tin pans, water buckets, pitchers, etc. began to fall in different parts of my house. There have been many other strange occurrences about my house. These facts can be established by 75 or 100 witnesses. On the face of it, it sounds as if Sorensi's house might have suffered an earthquake. In fact, that theory has been offered to explain the phenomena at the house. But that explanation does not hold up to scrutiny. The strange activity lasted weeks, even years, off and on. The Surrency house was the only one affected, and an earthquake could not explain all of the bizarre phenomena described below. And although the Surrency phenomena is usually referred to as a haunting and was attributed by witnesses to ghosts, the case has actually the earmarks of poltergeist activity, which is a psychic phenomenon rather than the one that is caused by a residual or intelligent haunting. In fact, there seem to have been no reports of an apparition at Surrency. Most poltergeist cases centre around an agent, usually a female of the age of puberty. At the time, the Surrency family had eight children, ranging in age from three to twenty-one. News of the haunting spread like wildfire, and soon Surrency was the centre of a media frenzy. Reporters and curiosity seekers from all over the country, and even England and Canada, descended on the little town in hopes of seeing the activity firsthand. Few were disappointed. Like the famous Bell Witch case, the poltergeist activity at the Surrency house was extreme and diverse. Here are just some of the reported phenomena. Unexplained screams were heard. Voices came from an empty bedroom. Plates, platters and books flew from their shelves. 
Ink bottles leap off a table. Doors opened and closed by unseen hands. The hands of clocks spun fast and even moved backward. A chime clock struck thirteen. Hot bricks fell from nowhere and landed on the roof and in the yard. A pair of boots trod across the floor on their own. At mealtimes, objects on the dinner table would dance around. Logs rolled out of the fireplace. Several hogs and chickens appeared in the living room, seemingly from nowhere, frightening one reporter out of his wits, and bed covers rolled up and down at night. In an effort to rid his house and family of the terrifying activity, Sorency sought the help of the clergy, scientists as well as spirit mediums and psychics, all to no avail. Even after the house burned down in 1925, the activity followed the family to their new home on the other side of the country. It wasn't until Alan Sorency's death in 1877, it is said, that the haunting finally stopped. Some, however, say it continues to this day around the town of Surrency. In fact, there is a famous ghost light there, a bright yellow ball of light that appears along the railroad tracks. And also from the paranormal.about.com website, and also by Stephen Wagner. Victim of the Beast 6 In a nondescript section of the Salt Lake Cemetery lies a small gravestone that bears an inscription so unusual that it has for years aroused curiosity, rumour, speculation, even fear with those who have encountered it. While surrounding grave markers are inscribed with such common inscriptions as devoted mother, beloved husband or simply in loving memory, the gravestone of Lily E. Gray is inscribed with the mysterious and highly provocative phrase, Victim of the Beast 666. This is an allusion, of course, to the New Testament's Book of Revelation, 13th chapter, which has been interpreted to refer to the Antichrist. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Six. The beast and 666 have henceforth become synonymous with Satan and the Antichrist. Why then, when other gravestones are inscribed with loving tributes, is Lily Gray's engraved with this dark, enigmatic message? What does it mean? In what way was she a victim of the beast? Who chose this unnerving inscription for her eternal resting place? These questions and more have been the crux of the mystery surrounding Lily Gray's grave for decades in Salt Lake City. No one seems to know what it means, and few have bothered to investigate to find out. No one has done more to try to unravel the mystery, perhaps, than Rochelle Hawkes, a long-time resident of Salt Lake. Rochelle has dug deeper than anyone to find out what the inscription might mean. 
Salt Lake City is home of the massive LDS, Latter-day Saints Operated Family History Library, and the world's genealogical research mecca, says Rochelle, on her Cemetery Legends website. Since the stone's erection in 1958, no one has dug deeply enough to uncover even a minimal account of Lily Gray's life and the origins of the inscription. When confronted with apparent true lunacy, evil, religious fervour, abuse or implausible as it may be, ultimate victimhood at the hands of Satan, as the stone literally implies, do we collectively turn our heads? Scouring the internet and local records, Rochelle has uncovered several fascinating clues about the meaning of the inscription. But her research has also produced additional mysteries. The engraving on the stone, for example, is inaccurate. There are several discrepancies between the information on her grave maker and the information contained in records, Rochelle says. Although I am relying on internet sources for the obituary information regarding the spelling of her name and her birth date, the cemetery sexton's records confirm the single L in her first name and the birth date of June 4, 1880, as opposed to the Stones version of June 6, 1881. How is it that Lily's name was incorrectly spelled L-I-L-L-Y on the gravestone? Simply an engraver's error? But what about the birth date? Was it purposely changed from June 4 to June 6 to reinforce the 666 reference? Lily's brief obituary cites her death at age 77 or 78, depending on which birth date is correct, from natural causes. So there doesn't seem to have been any foul play in her victimhood, or at least that directly caused her death. So how was poor Lily a victim of the beast? In fact, Who says she was? Who requested that epitaph? Was it Lily herself? Her husband, Elmer? Other members of her family? Or friends? Rochelle has discovered interesting information about Elmer Gray and his background that may yield clues about his nature and his relationship with Lily. Her husband, Elmer Lewis Gray, whom Edith married when she was 72 years old, may have been incarcerated before their marriage, says Rochelle. I have found records for an Elmer L. Gray's criminal pardons application in 1947. I have also found a 1901 Ogden Standard newspaper clipping in which a man named Elmer Gray was arrested and sentenced to five days on the rock pile for stealing an umbrella valued at $3.50 from the Payne and Hurst Company. I have no way of knowing if this is the same Elmer Gray, but the date and his age seems to fit. Although these records suggest that Elmer Gray, if it is the same man, was only a petty criminal, could he be the beast to whom Lily fell victim? Interestingly, Elmer's grave can be found in the same cemetery, but in a plot far from his wife. Further clues in this grave mystery might be found in the decoration on both Lily's and Elmer's tombstones. Douglas Keister's wonderful book, Stories in Stone, A Field Guide to Cemetery Symbolism and Iconography, contains a section on foliage and flowers, Rochelle says, and the flower on Lily's grave is clearly an evening primrose. According to Keister, the evening primrose has several meanings when used on tombstones including eternal love, youth, memory, hope and sadness. 
Perhaps, however, more symbolism can be construed from the primrose's nickname, Devil's Lantern. The carved floral adornment on Elmer's stone could be just as telling. They are clearly daffodils, otherwise known as Narcissus, Rochelle has found. According to Keister's book, the daffodil as used in funerary art can have the negative connotations associated with narcissism of vanity and self-love. It could also indicate triumph over these qualities, thus representing divine love and sacrifice. Either way, it is quite interesting that the Narcissus was chosen for Elmer's grave. The probe into the meaning behind Victim of the Beast 666 is far from over. In fact, although she has had more success than any other researcher into this mystery, Rochelle believes she has only scratched the surface. Research into this case has proved difficult, but she is certain that someone out there must have some insight about the inscription. Family members, people who knew the couple, neighbours, employers. Finding the truth will perhaps establish finally that Lily was not a victim of the beast at all, but only of a notorious and cruel epitaph. If she was a victim in life, we're sure she now rests in peace. The show notes for the Mysteries Abound podcast are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. The bandwidth of today's podcast was provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. We have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And a big thank you to Norman Birthmark, Sheila Jimenez, Lowe and Russell Walton for giving the podcast a donation. And remember, if you'd like to help out, the donation can be made through the podcast website, origins.info, and there's a PayPal button right on the front page. You can either use a PayPal account, or there is a link there where you can just do it via a credit card. So thank you for those people who have provided help for the show. And from the creepypasta.org website. Dream Sketch by G. Monaco. October 15, 2018 was the best and worst day of my life. It was the best day of my life because my wife had given birth to a beautiful baby boy. It was the worst day of my life because my wife went into a self-induced coma, resulting from excessive blood loss. I took my new son Sam home that day and left my sick wife at the hospital. I was filled with so much sadness, yet so much love all at the same time. Every night I put my baby boy to sleep and I was filled with absolute peace and joy. I had never seen a baby sleep as soundly as my son did. Every night I wished I could hold my wife as we watched our son dream the night away. 
I wanted so badly to retain these wonderful images I had of Sam. And I knew my wife would want them too. I knew I had to do something. My next door neighbour and his wife gave birth to a little girl named Cindy two years prior. I remembered them showing me a scrapbook filled with gorgeous sketches of animals, candies, toys and things of that sort. The sketches were created by a machine called a dream sketch. The machine worked like a polygraph device, except it sketched whatever a person or child was dreaming of at that time. I knew right then and there that I had found the answer I was looking for. When I brought the machine home, it came complete with a moderately sized sketching machine that came with a stack of paper, extra ink and two small wireless sensors that were to be placed on the right and left sides of the head of the dreamer. Later that night I cradled my young son to sleep. I then put the two small sensors on both sides of Sam's head and turned on the machine. The machine buzzed softly on into the night. I stayed in Sam's room for nearly an hour before I went to bed, periodically watching the dream sketch and watching Sam sleep. I was excited as a kid before Christmas, waiting to see what my son would dream up. When I awoke the next morning, I went into Sam's room to wake him up. Sam laid calmly in his crib as he stared at me, smiling. Just as I was going to pick up Sam, I remembered the dream sketch. A single sheet of paper lay on the floor next to the dream sketch. As I picked up the sheet of paper, I could clearly see it was a drawing of my wife lying in her hospital bed, fast asleep. Strange that such an image would be made from a newborn child, but there was something else that was odd about this drawing, something that I couldn't quite figure out. It was then that I received the phone call. I don't recall who it was that gave me the news that day. It could have been a man or even a woman for all I know. But what I do know for sure are the words that were spoken to me. Your wife is dead. It was then I knew what was odd about the sketch in my hand. My wife's electrocardiogram was flatlined. With tears in my eyes and a lump in my throat, there laid Sam calmly on his back, still staring at me, still smiling. I returned the dream sketch back to the store I bought it from and screamed at the employee who sold it to me. The employee did their best to explain to me that they have no control over what the dream sketch draws. That, of course, is all up to the person the dream sketch is hooked up to. The employee apologised profusely for the inconvenience, but I was inconsolable at that point. I was in a complete daze from the shock of my dead wife and the knowledge that her death was foretold. Who was it foretold by was the real question at hand. Was it a mistake? Did the dream sketch have a malfunction of some sort? Was there no malfunction at all? Or was it my baby son that indeed dreamt of the death of my poor departed wife? There was only one way to know for sure, and the answer terrified me. I left the store with a new dream sketch and waited anxiously for nightfall. It was difficult for me to rock Sam to sleep that night. He kept staring at me and smiling that damn smile of his. Eventually he fell asleep and slept soundly while I frantically opened the box to the dream sketch and put all the necessary pieces in order. Once I connected the senses to the right and left sides of Sam's head, I sat there in Sam's room, quietly in the dark. 
I listened to the quiet hum of the dream sketch and waited for the drawing needles to start sketching something. My heartbeat increased with every minute that the night consumed, and still I watched the drawing needles. Bags under my eyes started to form as the moon shifted its position in the sky. My heartbeat began to decrease as I tried desperately hard to stay awake and watch the drawing needles. The machine continued to hum throughout the night as I fell asleep in my rocking chair, rocking myself into a deep sleep. I awoke in a sweat as I could feel Sam's eyes staring into my subconscious. I locked eyes with my son as he continued to smile that same damn smile and I was frowning my same damn frown. I then looked down at the dream sketch and noticed another single sheet of paper lying down on the floor below. I dropped to my knees and crawled over to the paper, frightened as a child in the dark. I wanted nothing more than to crumple the paper up and burn it and never know what was drawn on it, but I couldn't. I had to know what was on the paper. I had to know who foretold my wife's death. I reluctantly looked at the paper and held my breath at the gruesome sight that lay before me. I looked on at that sheet of paper that had the drawing of a lunatic of a man carrying a bloody shotgun in one hand and a sheet of paper in the other. Two gory bodies lay on the floor below him. One of the bodies was of a young woman in her mid-twenties. The other body was of a little girl lying down next to a dream sketch. I recognised these people. I recognised that lunatic of a man. God help me, I knew who these people were. I looked out the window towards my next-door neighbour's house and saw fire trucks and cop cars and several ambulances. When I walked outside, I spoke with one of the police officers on my neighbour's lawn. He told me that my neighbour used his dream sketch on his wife. When my neighbour woke up and looked on at that sheet of paper that his dream sketch had produced, it was of his wife having sex with another man in a room as his daughter Cindy lay in a basket being carried by a stork. The officer told me that my neighbour had gone insane and murdered his wife and daughter with a shotgun. After completing the heinous act, my neighbour put both barrels of the shotgun into his mouth and fired. It was clear to me then that my newborn son was a master of evil. But how? How could a baby know such terror? How could a baby foresee evil things to come? Could he in fact be an evil being? Or could he just see things to come and these things just so happen to be forces of evil? No. How could one see evil, such terror, such brutality, and sleep so soundly at night? I knew then what must be done. I knew that Sam, my baby boy, had to die. I stampeded up the stairs in a rage toward my child's bedroom. Blood pumped through my veins like never before, as I was prepared to do the unthinkable. I swung open Sam's door so ferociously that it made a gaping hole when it slammed against the wall. I expected to hear Sam cry from the loud crash, but only silence was heard. When I approached the crib, Sam was fast asleep. He slept as calmly and sweetly as ever before. But I knew what he was. I knew the true evil that lurked behind those eyes that stared at me so deeply, and that mouth that smiled, that damned smile. I can admit that at this point, I had gone completely mad. I wanted Sam to wake up. I wanted him to see what I was about to do to him. I wanted him to show me that damned smile one last time as I choked the life from his wretched little body. I grabbed my son's throat and I squeezed. I squeezed until all the blood in my body had gone to my head. 
Blood pulsated throughout my veins as I squeezed. I was squeezing so hard that I hadn't breathed a breath for nearly a minute and I almost passed out. I collapsed to the ground afterwards, after I killed my only son. I cried for a while. I cried and pleaded to God and asked him if I did the right thing. It was then that I noticed a sheet of paper next to the dream sketch. I picked up the single sheet of paper and held it to my face. It was a drawing of me strangling my baby son in his crib. I killed my son. I killed Sam. I never knew whether or not Sam could see the evil things to come or if he made these evil things happen. But I did what I did and I would do it again today. Confession Statement made by Vincent Marshall regarding the murder of Samuel Marshall. Confession taken at Los Angeles County Police Department on December the 21st, 2018 at approximately 5.55 p.m.